Good morning. Welcome to Haven Ridge this morning. It's a blessing to worship the Lord with you today. Um, 
I've got a number of announcements this morning. I think this is probably the most announcements I've had in quite a long time. Um, so we're going to roll through these as quickly and efficiently as we can. But it is good to see so many faces this morning, many uh, returning from trips, vacations, uh, many who are back from being uh, sick, many visitors. So uh, just a welcome, welcome this morning. Um, all right. Well, a happy birthday to Clayton and to Wesley. Uh, both of them are turning older this year. I won't give any 13, 13 yes, <laughs> but 13, <laughs> uh, but do, do be sure to uh, wish them happy birthday. And if you want to give them baked goods or presents, I'm sure that they won't turn them down. So, uh, but happy birthday to both of you guys this morning. Uh, also a special thank you to Zach Vaughn for changing out the, the faucet in, uh, in one of our bathrooms. If you'd, you'd used it, you know, and it's been leaking. Zach graciously changed that out. I know he didn't want me to say anything, but I, I was going to. So thank you. Thank you so much uh, for that, Zach. Yes. Uh, also, just a reminder, uh, as, as most of you know, but just a reminder, for the month of July, we're taking a break for missional communities. Um, if groups want to meet, you know, and gather, hang out, um, you know, be engaged in social in a service project, certainly do so. Um, but typically, we take a break mid-year uh, for groups, and then again in December. So this is kind of our mid-year break. We'll resume our regular meetings in uh, in August. Um, so, but uh, in in lieu of that, I guess um, this. Wednesday, we're going to have just an open MC social at the Groves House um, at their pool. And so that'll, that'll be 6.30 until darkness, somewhere in there. <laughs> okay, um, so that's an open social. It's kind of a dessert and swim, hang out. So eat dinner before you come. Bring a dessert to share and maybe a drink or something. Um, bring your swimwear, your swim gear. Bring your kids. Don't leave your kids. Bring your kids and you. Um, and come hang out. It's going to be a lot of fun. So that's just an open so that's an open social for uh, for missional communities. But really anyone who who wants to come. So the girls have graciously opened that up uh, to the church church wide this uh, Wednesday. Um, and in in lieu of that, there won't be the regular midday uh, kids uh, gathering at at the Groves House uh, for, for the pool. Um, we we're talking with about it and figuring yeah we'll just we'll do one in the evening. It may be a little much for. Oh, goodness, face plant right there. <laughs> it's okay. Glad she's okay. <laughs> um, so if you've been taking your kids, you know, regularly uh, from like 11 to, to 1 to the Groves, that, uh, we won't have that this Wednesday. Um, instead, we're going to have the, the bigger uh, social in the evening. So, again, this Wednesday, 6.30 at the Groves. Bring a dessert. Bring a drink. Bring your swim gear. Come for lots of fun. All right. Um, next Sunday, we'll be having the Lord's Supper. So just make a note of that. So we'll do the Lord's Supper. We try and do that quarterly. We've been trying to get back into the swing of that since, you know, last year and COVID and everything. Um, you know, we're trying to get back into the back into a regular pattern. So next Sunday, we'll be doing the Lord's Supper. Um, also, next Sunday at 630 p.m., we'll be having a missional community leaders meeting here at the church building. Uh, on the 25th, we have our regular monthly men's meeting. That'll be 6.30 here at the church. Men, mark your calendars for that. Um, and then also on the 25th, just following the service, we're going to have a brief uh, financial um, meeting, just a financial presentation. Joey's going to give a brief report just on where we are fiscally. Um, we're trying to be consistent about you know uh, doing that throughout the year. Um, and so we're going to have that meeting on the 25th. 
Uh, also, just a reminder, uh, volunteers are still needed for the uh, Renewal Wade Hampton program. Ladies or families, or husbands and wives, if you're interested um, in doing that, see Natalie Moore for details. Um, and uh, the, right, in, right now, they're serving um, at the Renewal Home um, on Tuesdays from 11 to 12.30, fixing lunch for the, for the ladies there. Come August, we may change the, the date of that uh, just to kind of be more accommodating to, to more people. So, but right now, that's the open date. If anybody's interested in that, see Natalie for more details. Uh, also, I told you we had a lot of them. So. <laughs> uh, also, so um, uh, Mandy's reached out to, uh, to us, or Alan and Mandy have been in, in uh, contact. Mandy owns Little Me Academy over there. Um, and she has, uh, she said that she's, she's ready, uh, for us to be back in that building. So that's a blessing there. Um, now, as you know, before COVID hit and everything, we had several different classes over there for the children. Um, and so it's been over a year since we've done that and the church dynamics have changed. We have a lot of new faces, new families. Um, and then other people have not served in that capacity for quite a long time. So if you have served before and you're willing and would like to serve in teaching the children, that's where our kind of children's, children's church uh, basically was. Is that me? I don't know if that's me. Um, if you're interested in serving again, you, you, know, you would love to teach the children and be on a rotation, um, see Kelly Elliott. Where's Kelly? Is she downstairs? She's downstairs. See, see Kelly. Uh, see Kelly afterwards if you're interested in it. Um, if you're new to the church, you're new to the church family, you know, haven't served in capacity and you're interested, still see Kelly as well. Um, it's going to take a little time for us to kind of work this back in. We can't just throw everybody back, you know, into it and expect it to, to go well. So really initially what we're going to do is see what we have as far as veteran volunteers, um, you know, folks who have worked with the children before they, they know the program, how it works. Um, and then we'll build classes from there, which means that the, the number of classes and how, you know, what we can provide for the children right now is going to be based a lot off those volunteers, okay? So we may be able only to do one or two classes. It will just depend. Um, so, but based off those volunteers, we'll put a rotation schedule together and we'll roll that out. And it may take, um, you know, may take a month or so just to kind of get back into the swing of things. And then new volunteers will start to fold you into that group as well. Because what we don't want to do is just throw people in there without some training, without being able to shadow teachers uh, and, and classes. Okay, does that kind of make sense? Okay, we don't want to overwhelm people. We want to make sure that this is, you know, this, this works. So it may just take a little time to kind of roll that out. Um, so Kelly's going to be putting together that volunteer list. She's going to be talking to people. But if you're interested in serving, please see her. Let her know so she knows how she can structure those classes. Um, and then I think we're shooting for the 1st first, first of August, right? Yeah, 1st of August is the target date for being able to start those kids' classes back up. Okay, so we'll be giving more details as we move forward. But just want to let you know that um, so that you'll be aware, but also so that you can uh, you know, you can sign up to, to help lead those classes and be on that rotation. All right, and then the last thing I have is, uh, if, if, as you've noticed, if you've been here for a while, you know that the church is growing and we're starting to need more seat capacity. We've had to dip into kind of a reserve uh, set of chairs that we have downstairs, some of these blue chairs, uh, quite frequently. So, uh, uh, Alan and I have met with, uh, with Joey, who leads our finances, who's walking in the door right now. Everybody can say hey to him. Um, and 
we, we, uh, we looked at everything. We said, you know, we really, one of the biggest needs right now is we just need more chairs. You know, we need more seating capacity for people who come in. Um, so what we're looking at doing is we're looking at buying, purchasing some more chairs. The chairs that we have are actually on loan uh, for, uh, from a sister church, okay? They've loaned them to us. So we're looking at purchasing some of our own chairs. We'll maintain and we'll keep these, but to have more chairs that, that belong to the church that are at our disposal so we can seat more people as they come. Uh, so we're looking at buying somewhere between 20 and 30 chairs. Okay, that's going to cost about 600 to $1,000, somewhere within that range. Okay, um, and so we're presenting this to you. Um, if you have an issue with this, you have questions, please see me, Alan, or Joey. Um, I'm not going to go into all the, you know, the details of the finances and kind of where we are and things like that, because that's going to be coming in a couple weeks. But if you have questions about that, you want to know more, where, where's the church financially? Can we, you know, can we do this? Please see us. We're happy to share that information with you. I'm just not going to go into all that right now because we're going to move into worship. Okay? So just know that's what we're looking at doing is purchasing 20 to 30 chairs for a cost of somewhere between $600 and $1,000. Okay? Um, and again, if you have issue with that or you have questions, please see us. Um, you know, if there's not any you know, major issues or, or problems, we're going to move forward with purchasing those soon. Okay? All right. I think that's it. Alan, did I miss anything? All right. Well, I call to worship this morning comes from Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26, verses 7 to 10. Isaiah writes, and he's, he's speaking of the coming day of the Lord, the judgment day of the Lord. Um, and he writes two songs of praise. Well, one song of praise in chapter 25, and then a song of trust in God's provision and his protection. In chapter 26, and he says, this is the song that will be sung in the land of Judah in that day of the Lord. And verse 7 says, the way of the righteous is smooth. O upright one, make the path of the righteous level. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. At night, my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. For when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Though the wicked is shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, as we come, we gather to worship you this morning. Father, may we step back and gain a broad perspective of history of what you are doing to carry out your plan and your purposes. And Father, when we experience darkness, when we experience trouble, when the world falls apart around us, and Father, we cry out as the psalmist, Lord, where are you? May we know and have confidence, Father, that in the midst of the crucible of affliction and suffering, Father, you are teaching us righteousness. And may our soul, as Isaiah said, may our souls long for you. Father, would you stir and foster the memory of your grace and your mercy in the midst of struggling and suffering. So, Father, as we come and we gather, May we exalt the memory of Christ and his work upon the cross, Father. May it be an anchor to our souls this morning. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.
Stand together, if you will. Try. 
Children, if you want to come up and join Austin. All right. Good morning. How's everybody this morning? Good? Everybody having a good summer? Yeah. I see everybody spent lots of time out in the sun, right? <laughs> well, it's good to see everybody this morning. I just snuck right back there. <laughs> All right, well, we're working through really our, I think this is the last section, there's maybe one or two in our book, Big Truths for Young Hearts. So we've been talking about, we've talked about God and who He is, and we talked about people and who we are being created in God's image, and sin and how sin breaks that image, okay, and then our need for a Savior and who that Savior is, Jesus, and the work that Jesus did on the cross, okay, and so we move through a lot of those big, big ideas that are helpful to understand what it means to have faith in Jesus and to trust in him and to be saved. So now we come to this, the, this section and we talk about the church, okay? So somebody help me out. What, what is the church? What's the church? Okay, everyone that worships God. What else? Somebody else. Go ahead. Okay, a building where they praise God. What, Naomi? That sounded like that was going to be a big word. Can you, you want to try? We're funding a friend. Oh, a community. Okay, all right. A community of, of, uh, uh, of 
uh, of faith individuals, okay, people who, uh, who have faith. Okay, anybody else? Yeah, okay. All right, well, the church, the word church in the Bible means the called out ones, okay? The ones who are called out, saved by Jesus, okay, and called to live and to follow him, okay? And the church is where those who follow and trust in Jesus, okay, who are changed by the, the work of the Holy Spirit, okay, made new, they come and they worship him, they find community together, okay? And you, you may hear this phrase uh, said around Haven Ridge that we're a local expression of a global body, okay? Now, is this the only church? The only, like, building, the only place where people who trust in Jesus gather and worship? No, no. There are, there are true churches in else, elsewhere in Greenville and Greer, okay, in South Carolina, in the United States, all over the world, right? Okay? But there's a local expression. Of it. There's a local place, a small place where that, that happens, okay? Let me give you an example. How many of you ever played with bubbles before? Play with bubbles? Okay, you play with bubbles? You ever blown bubbles and you watch two of them join together, right? You ever seen that? Okay, what happens? Does it turn into something completely different? What happens? Turns into a bigger bubble. Okay, what does that bigger bubble look like? Does it look the same or different from the... It looks... Okay, it looks, it looks bigger, okay, but it looks the same. Generally the same. That's what I'm after, is the same. If you... Okay. You're going to derail my whole example, okay? <laughs> it's bigger, okay, but it still looks the same, right? It's still generally round, has that same shape, okay? It's, it's not green like grass, okay? Is it fuzzy? No, 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 it looks the same. Okay, so here's the point, okay? Where you find true churches, where you find little, let's say bubbles, okay? All right, they, they look when, 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 when Christ returns and he calls all of his people together and we're gathered around the throne of Christ and there's you know, millions and millions and millions of saved people by the grace of God, okay, from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, okay, that's going to be the big expression. That's the big bubble, okay? But as we gather together and we gather locally, we gather in small groups, okay, we still share those same characteristics, okay? Now, the music may look different. The building may look different, okay? You, you, in, in third world countries where you have churches gathered, there, there are goats that run through, you know, as people are worshiping. Okay, it looks different there. But the hearts and the character of the people are the same. The way they think about God, okay? And then the big picture and who Jesus is, those are the same. And you find community there, okay? As we gather together, there's friendship, there's fellowship. Okay, because we have that common aspect of being saved by grace and wanting to follow Jesus. Okay, so here's the here, here's the main idea. Okay, for today that Jesus is Lord of the church. Okay, because you may say you know you may talk to friends and say, well, that's my church. Okay, like Haven Ridge is my church, or if you're visiting, this is my church. Okay, or this is Pastor So and So's church. Okay, and that's fine. That's okay to say. But who does the church belong to? God. That's right belongs to God. Specifically, now we said God, how many persons are in God? Twelve? Three. Three. God the God the Holy Spirit. There we go. Okay, if you take nothing else away from all this, you're going to take that one away. <laughs> okay, so it belongs to God the Son. Okay, and the words given in Scripture, there's a lot of different pictures that are given in Scripture about what the church looks like in its relationship to Jesus. Okay, Jesus the Son. Okay, one of those pictures is a bride and a groom. The church is Jesus' bride, okay, and uh, Jesus is the groom. Okay, another picture is that of the body, 
Okay, that the church is the body of Christ and Christ is the head. Okay, all right. The head directs the body. It's where it gets, uh, where it sees and understands things, is able to interact with things around it. Okay, so you have these pictures. Now, the, another picture, and this is the one just for time's sake, this is the one that I really want to focus on. I think this may be the most helpful to you. All right, is that of a sheep, a herd of sheep and a shepherd. Okay, that of a herd of sheep and a shepherd. In John chapter 10, Jesus talks about the church. Okay, and he says the sheep, his sheep, hear his voice. All right, and they follow him. And the, the good shepherd, which is Jesus, okay, he provides protection for those sheep. Okay, they know his name and they follow him. Okay, and so Jesus is pictured as the good shepherd. Okay, now what does a shepherd do for a sheep? Anybody know? takes care of them okay like like how tucks them into bed okay feeds them right leads them to places where there's good food right what else protects them from what predators like wolves tigers and bears no mice right yes exactly yep so he protects them okay what else flips them back over when they fall on their back that's a new one. <laughs> okay, but takes care of them. If they're injured, if they're hurt, okay, the shepherd takes care of them, heals their infirmities, heals their sicknesses, okay? So that's absolutely right. So in the same way, Jesus is pictured as the good shepherd who takes care of the, ch of the church, of his people, okay? He protects them. He guards them. Do you know what Jesus told uh, Peter? Okay, Jesus asked Peter, he said, who does the world say that I am? And, and Peter and the disciples went through all these thing, different things. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Jesus said, or and Peter speaks up and he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, that's right. And upon this rock, what he meant was that profession of faith. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we learn a couple things. Are you guys listening? We learn a couple important things right here about Jesus. Okay, and what he meant is that the church belongs to him. He said, I will build my church. But also that he's going to do everything in his power to make that church happen and form it and fashion it just the way that he wants it. Okay, that nothing, nothing, no power on earth or, 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 uh, or in the spiritual world can, can go against that. Okay, how many of you guys ever wanted to do something really, really bad? Like what? Go swimming? No. What else? What, what something you really want to do really, really bad? Go get donuts. Go get donuts, okay? Did you have the power to do it? No. Okay. Go buy a car, okay. All right. Look, give me something like you wanted to play a toy or you wanted to play a game. Play with a toy or play with a game. Something you had the power to do. Okay. All right. Something you had the power to do. You'd do anything. You'd do anything within your power to make that happen, right? But you have limited power. You can't always go get donuts play with your new toy okay you, can, you can't always do that because you have limited power but Jesus has unlimited power so that should tell us something when he says he will build his church and nothing can stand against it right okay that tells you how important the church is to Jesus okay there's one other thing I want to teach you okay about Jesus being Lord of the church all right Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, okay, they, they hear my voice and they follow me, okay, do you know something about sheep, it's interesting, if you take a herd of sheep 
and and sheep herders, you know, shepherds will do this. They'll take their herd of sheep, and they they may put like a pink dot or you know something on those sheep of different color, like an orange dot or something like that. Exactly to say, well, these are my sheep. Okay, and sheep herders they'll get together in big valleys. Okay. And they'll bring all their flocks together. And if you were like up in an airplane, you were standing on top of a mountain, you were looking down in, the, in a valley, you would see thousands of sheep in there, and they're all mixed together. And the sheep herders are hanging out over here, you know, just chatting, talking. And then when it's time to leave, the sheep herders get up, and they go their own way, and they'll whistle or they'll call. And you know what? Their sheep follow them. That tells you something, doesn't it? So when Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, that Jesus leads his church, okay? And that people who are redeemed and saved by him, that they hear his voice and they know him, okay? Now, we know Christ and we know God through God's word, through the Bible, what he reveals to us, and the work of his Holy Spirit to conform us to the image of Jesus, okay? So those work together. The Holy Spirit and God's revealed word work together to show us who God is and who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Okay, but the true church acknowledges Jesus as Lord and follows him, hears his voice and follows him. Okay, now that should give us encouragement and, and confidence, right? Okay, that we're not, you know, we're not left to something, somebody else to direct the church and say, is this going to work out? Is this, you know, when things look really dark around us, we're going, is, God, is your plan still working? We can have confidence that Jesus, who has all power, Right? And whom everything is put in subjection under his feet, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he's going to protect his church and he's going to carry that out. Okay? All right. Well, thank you guys. I really appreciate you listening. Let me pray for us. Okay? And you guys can go back to your seat. Three and four year olds, you guys can go uh, meet your teachers by the back door for your class. All right, Father God, Lord, we thank you. Thank you and praise you. That, Lord, you have called your sheep to yourself. It's not up to us to figure it out or to, to paint a particular mark on our backs and say, look at me, I belong to the church, and try and make that happen or to be smart enough to figure it out. And Lord, that when you save people, you do so and you call them to yourself, and we give you the praise and glory for it. And you call your people to gather together to worship you, to have expressions of good deeds and charity and grace towards one another and towards the rest of the world. Father, that we might be lights in the midst of darkness, not for our own glory, but that our good and honorable deeds that bring glory to your name would shine, that others may see our good works and glorify you. And so, Father, I pray that we as a church, as this local expression of the global body, would follow Christ, that we would have a heart to love Jesus. See him clearly and not be distracted and carried about by other winds and waves and cultures and doctrines and things that are popular around us. But just ask, Lord, who are you? May we know you. May we follow you and be faithful. Father, I pray for these young hearts this morning, Lord, that you would draw them each to yourself, that you would save their souls. Father, they would profess faith in Christ, that they would love Jesus, they would see their need for him. Father, that they would hear the good shepherd's voice and would follow him. It's in Christ's precious name that I pray. Amen. All right, you guys can go sit down. Thank you.
two things, Emma, I desire donuts all the time as well. And does anyone else get very nervous when their six-year-old's about to answer theological questions? Just me? I get, in my mind, I get this vision of smog from Lord of the Rings, and as he's, his neck is getting primed to blow devastation all over everything in the form of fire, and when Calvin starts to speak, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, so, uh, but he did well, he did well, so uh, if it's just me, I wish it upon all of you. So uh, anyway, before we move forward, I want to say this, okay, today is Jamie's last Sunday to play bass guitar with us. Um, they're not leaving, right? Hey, 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 <laughs> just want to be clear, okay. <laughs> I don't think I could take him, but I'll sure give it a good college try. If he tries anything like that, you know, somebody could help me out. But uh, Jamie's been super faithful uh, playing bass for us for a number of years now. Uh, brother, you're a picture of faithfulness. You know, I know he hates the attention. He's a behind-the-scenes guy, humble guy. Um, but you're, you're so faithful to every practice, to every Sunday morning, you know. And so uh, we love you and appreciate you so much. And um I guess after two weeks, they'll come back, whatever, you know, just all, y'all pray, um, you know, so uh, n- nothing's wrong or anything like that. He's just wanting to allow for someone else to, uh, to, have, to have a moment to use their gifts, um, but also to be able to capitalize on more time with his family. So we have nothing but respect for you for that, and we love you, and that's why we're going to do three more songs because I want to enjoy every moment that I get to worship with this, with this brother here. So let's stand together, and we'll worship a little while longer. Who else commands all the hosts of heaven? Who else could make every king bow down? Who else can whisper in darkness tremble? Praises, what other splendor I 
Let's pray. Father, glory to your name. Glory to your name. May we not miss the words in that song. That we are called sons and daughters. Not because we're only made in your image. Not because we deserve it. Not because we can leverage some moral righteousness. Not because there's some goodness, some purity, some cleanness in us. No, but because you, the Father have ransomed us through the blood of the Son. May it teach us something about the cost of sin and the, the, the infinite value of the blood of Your Son, Christ. So, Father, we glorify Your name because of the work You have done. And we give you praise. Worship doesn't make sense without that. And so, Father, we exalt your name this morning. And Lord, as other brothers and sisters are faithfully gathering today across the world to sing the same song of praise, not the same lyrics, but the same, the same emphasis of praise to you, it's echoing throughout this world. So, Father, we thank you and we give you praise. We lift our voices along with others. And we lift up to you specifically, Father, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are missionaries across the world. We lift up to you, Doug and Lauren and Eunice and Candy and the Boyer family. And pray, Father, that you would anneal their faith in the midst of struggle, affliction, sickness, even in the midst of persecution, Father. That Christ will become more precious for them today than yesterday. Their desire to share the gospel with people around them and to walk by grace through faith in the righteousness of Jesus. Would it be stronger today in them than it was yesterday? Father, your gospel would go forth and you would call many, many more people to yourself, to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And now, Father, as we gather, we open your word. Father, bless Alan. Give him clarity of mind and speech. Lord, that he might bring your word before us. And that you would deal with our hearts as we need to. That we would go out from this place a little saltier, a little brighter, a little humbler, with a little more humble boldness in Jesus, that we might display to the world more what it means to be saved through His shed blood and transformed. Not for our glory, but for yours. It is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.
Psalm chapter 51. I can feel it. I can feel it getting ready to pop. <laughs> it sounds okay right now, so uh, we'll try to navigate through the annoying sounds. But So Psalm 51, if you're not familiar with Psalm 51, understand this. It is David's prayer of repentance. It's not the only psalm that's written where he expresses a contrite heart. But this is a critical, critical text to understand because... This is the moment where a king is brought to his knees. This is the moment where God's man, a man after God's own heart, is brought to abject humiliation before a holy God. And if you compare yourself to people in the scriptures, I bet that rarely do you compare yourself to someone like David. I think in our humility, we would never say, I'm a man after God's own heart. I would like to be. Maybe you say that, and that's appropriate. Maybe, you know, you compare yourself to someone like Peter, which is a little bit more appropriate because Peter failed so many times, but you saw God's work of restoration in Peter and giving him boldness and, and using him in part to turn the world upside down. Maybe you identify with that, right? Maybe you identify with uh, Balaam because Balaam was so stubborn and stiff-necked that God had to speak through his donkey. Maybe you identify with Balaam or the donkey, I don't know. Maybe you identify in those ways. But rarely or never have I come across someone that says, ah, I'm a bit like David. You know, I'm, I'm that guy. You know, I'm a bit like David. You're not, <laughs> just in case you were wondering. Um, so David has committed a sin against God, and God calls him out on it. Okay, so without going through everything, it's in 2 Samuel 10, 11, 12. David is king. He's a mighty king. He's a good king. He's the best king that Israel has seen, right, to date. All right, he is, he is, he's great, right? Remember that whole fiasco with he and Saul and how Saul was very jealous. They enter into the city after battle, and they're singing that Saul has slain his thousands and then they sing that David has slain his ten thousand. Saul can't stand it because David's getting all this notoriety. He's getting all this attention. I mean he's the man. I mean God himself says he's a man after God's own heart. Maybe you remember David being appointed as a would be or to be king. David takes Jesse, David's daddy, and he says, Hey, you know, he's you know he sends you know he sends Samuel out there. He says, Okay, I want you to go find the next king and he goes and finds Jesse. He says, I want you to take all of your sons and line them up, you know, strapping young men, each one looking like could be the king of Israel. And he goes through the line, surely this is the man, God, surely that's him, nope, not him. Surely this is the man, nope, not him. And David wasn't even in the lineup. David was out in the field. His own daddy thought, all right, let's not waste your time by bringing David from the field. The Bible says he was ruddy but handsome in appearance. He wasn't much to look at. I mean, not a superior athlete like myself. You know, he was someone that was very, very small, right? Very small. You wouldn't think, okay, you know, if I've got to tackle Jamie down and make sure he sticks around for a while, that's not the guy I'm taking with me, right? So, you know, I might, you know, Travis or somebody like that. That'd be my go-to, Austin, you know, maybe get a military man over here, get him to come and help me out. You know, you don't have a prayer, brother, if you try to skedaddle. So <laughs> David comes out, and God's like, that's him. 
that's my man. What? This guy? I mean, sure, he's handsome, but he's ruddy. He's a runt. He's a little dude. I mean, he's nothing. That's, that's going to represent Israel? That's going to be your king? Are you kidding me? And we know that David was, in fact, appointed king, that David was, in fact, God's man. And David was, in fact, a man after God's own heart. And because of that, God showed tremendous favor on David. Now, I would even go as far as to say as the only reason David was a man after God's own heart is because God first showed favor to David as he did for you and I. But David's favor was special because David was given victory after victory after victory in war. But it was during this one time of war that David was not in a place that he should have been. You see, as a king, kings would go out to battle with their armies. And there was this one time where David forsook his role. David abandoned his post because David was supposed to be out with his army. That's what the man would do. That's what the king would do, especially this king, this king, this man after God's own heart. And what did David do? He stays. But why did he stay? Because he saw a woman that he desired. He didn't just desire her as a friend. He didn't just desire her as someone to have a conversation with because she was another image bearer of God. He desired her because he wanted to be with her in every way that a man should not be with a woman outside of a context of marriage. And David had the clout, he had the power, he had the prestige to do whatever he wanted to do. Now, there's all kinds of debate over whether or not Bathsheba would have, Bathsheba would have acquiesced, you know, uh, willingly, or did she desire him as well? You know, we know he's a handsome guy, but was it more of, you know, this is the king, he could have me killed if I, if I don't acquiesce. David wasn't a brute. David wasn't this horrific man who exercised dominance and power over everybody at every turn. That wasn't David's M.O. But David was a man after God's own heart. But in this moment, a man after God's own heart, a man fell. And David, as the army's out, and a part of that army was Uriah the Hittite, which was Bathsheba's husband. Knowing that he was away, David stayed and he capitalized. What takes a man of God, a man who is so in pursuit of the heart of God, to fall in such monumental fashion. I think we get a glimpse into the power of the sin nature and our desperate need of the gospel every single day. So David stays and he calls for Bathsheba. He has his way with Bathsheba. Bathsheba gets pregnant. David tries to conceal the pregnancy. In fact, he tries to bring Uriah the Hittite off the battlefield. And he said, hey, go and be with your wife. Go be with your wife. David tries to get him drunk. Hey, go be with your wife. Go enjoy your wife, and then you can go back to the battlefield. Well, Uriah, being a noble man, said, no, no, I can't do that. All all of my comrades, everybody else, all my brothers in arms, they're on the field. They're dying. I, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be, or I should be where I'm supposed to be, O king. And David says, well, maybe I'll just get him drunk, gets him drunk so that maybe he can blame the pregnancy on Uriah because Uriah would be too drunk to understand what happened. Maybe he wouldn't recall the fact that maybe Uriah did lie with his wife, got her pregnant, and then David could say, hey, it's your baby, but that's not what happened. Uriah was a noble man. And David knew that. And then insult leads to injury. David, a man after God's own heart, he does what? He says, okay, I've got to cover this up the best way that I can. So the way that I'll do that is I'll just kill him. 
So David sends a note to the leader of his army and says, I want you to take Uriah and put him at the front line of battle to ensure that he dies. And that's exactly what happened. Uriah the Hittite dies. Bathsheba's husband dies because David had him killed. All to cover up his own sin. This is a man after God's own heart. Maybe we can say now, I am a bit like David actually. I am a bit like David, actually. Maybe there's seasons in my life where I do desire the heart of God, but then I turn right around in the same moment, in the same breath that I praise my God and King with, I hurl insults against Him by the way that I live my life. So maybe we are like David in many ways. And so a season goes by, and then God prepares something for David. God prepares a man named Nathan. Yeah. <laughs> That's ever a man named Nathan. And so Nathan, God tells him what has happened, and Nathan is going to approach David, and he does this. And he approaches, it, approaches him in, a, in an interesting way. He doesn't just come and say, hey, I'm the prophet of God. I'm God's man. You know, you're God's man, but I'm God's man, right? I'm God's mouthpiece. And so let me say this. You've done this horrible thing. Repent. <laughs> Repent. That's not exactly what happened. God shows Nathan what happened. Nathan goes to David he tells him a story of a rich man who had all the things that he could ever want. He told him a story of a poor man who had nothing but this ewe lamb, this lamb that he loved so very much. He took care of and he cherished just as his pet, probably a ruddy little lamb, much like David. But the rich man didn't want to kill one of his own inventory for his little party. He decided he was going to take the poor man's. Rich man had everything that he could ever want. He said, but I don't want to get rid of all my stuff. I'll start picking off from the lesser people. So he takes the ewe lamb from this man. And David is filled with rage at this time because Nathan's sharing this story. David says, point me at him. Point me at him, and we'll deal with this guy. As king, I won't let this trash happen. (laughs) And then Nathan says, you're the man. You're the man, David. And I know we've all heard that story a thousand times, you know, and every time it still lands very heavily on me that Nathan says, you're the man. And I don't know at what point David broke, but I know we see his brokenness in his psalm. And so let's read this psalm together. That's the context. Here is the fruit of brokenness. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You see, sometimes we get in this mindset that We've only sinned against one another. Go make it right with your brother. What about making it right before a holy God? And this is what David's doing. He's recognizing, yes, I've wronged my brother Uriah. I've wronged my sister uh, Bathsheba. I've wronged my wives. I've wronged so many people. I've wronged Israel for misrepresenting God's man. But I've sinned against you and done what's evil in your sight. He says, so that you might be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin my, did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the, in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, he says, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. And, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in the sacrifice or I would give it. You do not, you're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. And he says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then the bulls will be offered on your altar. So the way this is going to read today, a little bit different than what I normally do, it's going to be bullet pointed. And I have several, but I'm going to make quick statements about each one. So as far as application, as far as notes, it should be fairly simple. Um, I wanted to keep this very palatable, very tangible. So let me define for you brokenness. Brokenness is the action of God where he creates a posture within us so that we can recognize the damaging effects of our sin and the grace and mercy provided where, which, or by which we can be reconciled back to God. God does the breaking. Brokenness is not manufactured. We don't just decide, I'm going to be broken today before a holy God. It doesn't work that way. Our sinful nature pulls us away from such a notion. It's not natural for us to be broken. That's supernatural, something God does for us. David said, let these bones that you have broken rejoice. So that's brokenness. And so this, the, ob, the objective is to see the result of God's work in breaking those he loves. So the, the passage starts out again by saying, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. I think it's interesting. David sets the stage with this phrase, according to your steadfast love or according to your loving kindness. Because everything else that happens, everything else that transpires as he walks through this is according to God's loving kindness. Is according to God's loving kindness. And so I see this, that brokenness for the believer that God does, it brings about or produces in us a plea for mercy. A plea for mercy. We see that we've sinned against God. We recognize that we're broken. We recognize that we're not only broken because we're in a fallen world, but then God supernaturally imposes his will on us. He breaks us. We see that we're destitute. We see that we've offended him, that we haven't just sinned against our mommy and daddy, that we haven't just sinned against our husband or wife or our children because we've lost patience, but because we've sinned against a God who's holy. And David recognizes that. And I believe that when God brings about genuine brokenness, the result is a plea for mercy. God, please stay your hand because I deserve your wrath. I deserve your punishment. I deserve the devastating effects of your hatred for sin poured upon my head. But God, please be merciful to me. If you haven't prayed for that kind of mercy, it begs the question if you've really been broken before a holy God. 
Because I think brokenness produces a plea for mercy. Brokenness also leads to an admission of guilt. Listen, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. My transgressions, he says, I've sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. I've broken your law. Be merciful to me. I recognize my guilt. I recognize these things. It blows my mind how many people I talk to that don't realize that they've actually offended God. And I don't go around just saying, hey, how are you today? What have you done to offend God lately? I, don't, I mean, that's not how I have conversations with people. But when I get into witnessing, uh, you know, opportunities, evangelistic type stuff, and I have one-on-one conversations where people can dialogue with me, so many times I get into this kind of conversation you know, well, I, I, I do, I mean, it's the good works thing. I do pretty good. God can't be that mad at, mad at me. And then they've created this scale for themselves that says, I'm not a rapist. I'm not a murderer. I'm not this. I don't abuse my wife. You know, I don't kick my children in the head. I don't do these things. You know, all I do, all I do is drink a little bit. I'm not saying this is wrong. I'm saying the conversations that I hear. All I do, you know, I might have a potty mouth. You know, I, you know, I might, I might, I might you, know, you know, cheat a little bit on a test. You know, so we have these sins that we deem to be respectable or less offensive. And a lot of times we don't even think that that's really enough to bring us guilt before God. Because it's not these other sins. You see, David's sorrow was a sorrow that leads to life as opposed to a sorrow that leads to death. This is what the Apostle Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians. He says, for godly sorrow or godly grief produces A repentance that leads to salvation. And I would say this sorrow that David expresses might not be unto salvation because he's already a follower of Yahweh. But this is a godly sorrow that produces in him repentance unto sanctification. Unto growth and moving forward and being refined by the mercy and grace of God. This is not a sorrow that says, I'm sorry I got caught. Because a sorrow that only expresses grief because I've been caught is a sorrow that leads to death. If you have friends or family or co-workers that are sorry because they were unethical and they got fired. Oh, I, I wish I hadn't done that. That's not a sorrow that leads to life. Because the common denominator in the sorrow that leads to life is a recognition or an admission of guilt before a holy God. And that's what brokenness does for us. Third, brokenness leads us to accept the justice of God. Listen to verse 4. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I've done these things. He says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. David could accept the justice of God because he first accepted his guilt and sinning against a holy God. I won't go into a lot of this today because I think it was last week or the week before that we talked a lot about God's justice. We talked about the fact that there's accepting what God does and then accepting that what God does is right and good and true. There is a difference. David here hasn't just accepted the judgments of God. He's accepted how right God's judgments are. He's accepted how good his judgments are. He's saying, whatever you're going to bring on my head, I deserve it. And you're good. If I'm going to be an example, that's good. If what happens to me 
as a result of my sin serves to glorify you, serves to expand your kingdom, serves to show others your justice and how you're not to be trivial with, then praise you for that. And I think brokenness brings that kind of disposition in us. Now, when we think brokenness, sometimes we think crying, sobbing. Oh, I, I don't mean that. Don't, don't confuse emotionalism with brokenness. I'm not, that doesn't have to happen. It might happen. That's happened to me in my life, and the result was, you know, crying like a baby. But sometimes not. Sometimes it's just a, a sobriety that lands on me that gives me a healthy perspective of my sinfulness before a holy God. Brokenness leads us to accept the justice of God. David realized that his punishment was fully warranted because God had broken him so that he might see that. What else does brokenness do? Listen to verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret place. Brokenness helps us to receive instruction under God's discipline. We just talked about this in the book of Habakkuk, where Habakkuk prays on behalf of Judah And God doesn't ask for God's retribution to be moved off of Judah, but that they might learn in the midst of the hardship. Again, I won't go into all of that stuff. You can look that up online if you want to hear uh, that discussed. But understand that David is recognizing the goodness of God in dispensing his judgment if that's what God chooses to do. And he says, You delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach wisdom in the secret place. It's like, God, you are always instructing. You are always teaching. And whatever comes to me, Lord, I will delight in that. I will delight in your truth. I will delight in your instruction. Whether it's the hardship of discipline or the hardship you face for the glory of God, there is a difference. You sin against God, and maybe there's a disciplinary measure that God takes. We glorify God in that. God, teach us in the midst of that. I mean, what loving parent doesn't discipline their child, you know? I can't stand it. I can't stand having to discipline my children. I cannot stand it. You know, it it does grieve my heart. It really does. But how much do I love my child if I don't set my child up for success that matters in that way that comes through discipline? And this is what God is doing. How can we as parents not look at God as the father and say, your discipline is by your love, because of your love? But there's also the glory of God in other hardships that we face. And here's an example. In John, the man who was born blind, don't you remember the disciples who are asking Jesus, who has sinned, this this man or his parents? Jesus says, neither. Neither one of them sinned. This man's blind, but surely, (laughs) surely God has, you know, smote him because he's done something awful or his parents have. So surely something's going on here. Who's to blame? We need to know. He's like, nobody. What? I mean, he's taking them to school, right? He's like, listen, some things just come to pass to show how great God is. And if that's you or your child being born blind, then so be it. And that takes a a lot of theological acumen. It takes a lot for us to swallow that, especially when it comes to our children, especially when it comes to us and our lives. You know, I can't, you know, all the... I know I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a sissy, despite you know my athleticism. I'm a, I know I'm a sissy. Aaron and I were talking about uh, absurd narcissism. I, I I have absurd narcissism. If you take that narcissism to a ridiculous level, it's funny. 
But if I'm serious about how awesome I am, then it's offensive, right? So uh, trust me, it's absurd narcissism. And now I've forgotten where I was. So thank you. <laughs> Can we edit that for later, please? <laughs> Put hero in, in place there. Whether it's the hardship or discipline or the hardship of discipline or the hardship you face for God's glory, either way, it is in that crucible that we are shaped and refined into an instrument into the Redeemer's hands. Brokenness helps us to understand that. Brokenness helps us to receive God's instruction under discipline, especially. David gets it. David's a shell of a man. I mean, just imagine. Imagine all that he had been through, all that God had done for him. And he commits this atrocity against God, against Uriah, against Bathsheba, against Israel, I mean, all this stuff. And, he's, and God has held up this mirror now for him. And he sees, in that moment, he sees, he sees it enough that he would be broken over it. Imagine what that felt like. Brokenness produces in us a, not just an understanding that we are learning through God's judgment and discipline, but brokenness also produces in us a celebration of that discipline. And this, it gets harder now. <laughs> you know, this is fairly low-hanging fruit today because I'm preparing these for a bunch of students. So um, if it's over your head, then I've got work to do before tomorrow. When God breaks us, creates in us this celebration of God's discipline. And here's where I would argue that. Verse 8 says, let me hear joy and gladness and let these bones that you have broken rejoice. Let them rejoice. You see, it's an awful thing when a shepherd has to break the legs of a sheep. But the shepherd does that often for sheep that are cantankerous probably shouldn't use that word for for students. Uh, when sheep are hard to handle, and they run away like you and I often do in the eyes of God. When the shepherd goes and finds that sheep, he breaks the sheep's leg and hoists the sheep over his shoulder and carries it around. And during the time of mending, the time of healing, the sheep learns to be dependent on the shepherd, right? You've heard this before. It's such a beautiful, beautiful thing. And David sees that. He celebrates that. He rejoices in the fact that, God, you broke me. Let these bones that you have broken rejoice. Let the judgments that come on me, let the discipline that comes on me, let all of that that happens to me, Lord, may my response be celebration of that. Because how can you not celebrate a Savior that loves you enough to ensure that you stay where you need to be? David gets it. And I told you, brokenness is not manufactured. We can't come up with it on our own. <laughs> Let these bones that you have broken rejo rejoice. David understood God's role in our brokenness. God's activity brings us to a place of brokenness and conformity. You know, I, I, I think of, you know, you, you, you guys laugh at us because Austin and I always use these uh, use these. <laughs> building construction illustration, you know. So I have more to tattle on Austin, but I'll save that for a few weeks. Um, but uh, so I, I keep thinking of the fact that, like, I went to a job this week, and the 
The name of the game was demo for the day, right? We go and we tear stuff out, and then we start to rebuild it. And I think, you know, that's what God does. You know, we go in and we tear up stuff, and sometimes stuff is a mess. These 100, 120-year-old houses, I mean, they got termite damage. They've got water, I mean, the, the wood is rotten because of water. You know, I mean, it's just nasty. Snakes sometimes falling off the ceiling. You hadn't seen something funny until you see about a 250-pound man run around with a snake that's falling around his neck, right? I mean, you haven't seen agility like that in a human being until the snake is draped around their neck that has fallen from the ceiling. And so I thought, this is what we do. We tear things apart so we can rebuild them better. I think that's what God is doing here. I think that's what God does for us is he breaks us, he tears us apart, he shreds us, he, he just, he just <coughs> ruins us, and he builds us. And David says, let these bones that you have broken rejoice. I celebrate the conforming work that you're doing to me to make me more like Christ, even though David didn't know Christ. We understand in hindsight God is making us more like his son. He's making us more into the image of Jesus with every moment of discipline, with every hardship, with every struggle, with every disciplinary action and measure, God is making us more like his son and therefore making it so that we can bring more glory to God. Brokenness provides us with a right way of thinking, not just towards discipline, not just towards that, but also towards what real joy is. Everybody wants joy. Everybody wants to be happy. But most of us kind of confuse or conflate what temporal happiness is with eternal, lasting, meaningful joy. David says in verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. First of all, salvation belongs to the Lord. He gives it. If you enjoy salvation, it's because the Lord gave it to you, not because you found it. You don't find brokenness on your own. You don't find salvation on your own. You don't pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You are nothing. You are clay. Clay just lays there until the potter says, okay, it's time for me to shape you into what I want for you. You don't do anything. Congratulations. You are worthless outside of Christ. At least I got some amens on that one. <laughs> some slipping out the door back there. Temporal joy is rooted in something that we can lose, right? We have a... Uh, we have a text group that Austin and I have been in for years, and you know, if you don't if you don't know it, you know, I you know I do talk about my superior athleticism, but I was a part of a very successful baseball team many many years ago. Austin's laughing, and we had a really good record one year. And I have this I have this state ring. It's the only state ring I've ever I've ever had. Went to the playoffs many times, lost the playoffs many times. Went to state championships numerous times, lost state championships numerous times, but there was one, and we won, and we won in huge fashion with a 43 and 0 season. Went 67 games with no losses in baseball. That's unheard of. Still a record today. I'll sign autographs afterwards if you'd like, but that's that's arrogant. So, um, but I have this ring, right? Talk about living in the past. It gets ridiculous real fast around my house. Sometimes I put on my old jersey and I walk around. My wife says, "You're in denial, right? <laughs> Do I still got it, honey?" She's like, "No. <laughs> you got different things, but not that. You know. So, <laughs> got a few extra pounds." But not that, you know, so if you swing a bat, you might have to go to the chiropractor. But how ridiculous would it be if I walked around wearing this state championship ring from 1996, right? I mean, you'd have to laugh at me. You'd slap me, do something. If you ever see me, something's wrong with me, Austin, Austin becomes a single elder, I'm out. I've got to be if, if, I'm, if I'm doing that. But when I got that ring, I was so happy. There's so much joy. I was like, this is it. I have arrived. Universe, welcome me. 
And it was not much time at all after that that I was like, not even wearing the ring. Didn't even care. Not only did I not care, but I promise you no one else cared either. I try to bring it up in conversation with folks. They don't care still. They don't care. Just like you don't care. Material possessions. My kids always say to me, Daddy, Mommy, if you'll get me this, I never ask for another thing. No comments from Joey, please. And I'm, I, I know I see me and my kids. That's what they got from me. You know, I, I get out title on myself, but it's material. A good health report, promotion at work, pay raise, whatever you say. These are temporal things. I'm not saying they're bad. They're just temporal. They're not your God. Not worthy of your worship. They're not worthy of your heart's pursuit. But eternal joy, that's a different thing. And that's rooted in something that cannot be taken, something that cannot be lost. This is what David is speaking of. This is what he's speaking of again when he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The joy of your salvation. Restore to me that which I have eternal hope and joy in. Because you did all the work because I couldn't have. So if your joy is determined by the things of the world, then you will only face hardship and heartache throughout your life. I'm not saying these things are wrong, but if that's your joy, then it's also your idol. And God has a way of tearing those down and ripping them from your hands, and it's always painful. Brokenness does something else. It motivates us to act. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. So how does David respond here? He says, I'll act, I'll move, I'll do something. You know, you've brought me to brokenness, and so the, the result or the response, the byproduct is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do. So, you know, you understand that God doesn't save you to neutrality, doesn't save you just from something, but to something and for something. I mean, he even says it in the salvific text where he says, you're saved by grace through faith. And he says, for you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Right? You are his workmen. You're to do things. So he's rescued you from the domain of darkness, brought you into the kingdom of his beloved son, not where you, where you, you know, collect glorious seashells all your life, but where you say, okay, now what? What's my mission? Because I'm supposed to be on the move. And on the move looks different for everybody in this room. There are common denominators, and then there are things that are different according to God's specific call for each one of our lives. But you better believe that every one of you have a platform for gospel ministry. A good indication that God has broken you is when your next steps are efforts for God's glory and for God's kingdom instead of your own. I think Peter knew this well. We see how his story ended up. I mentioned that earlier. And the final thing is this. Brokenness creates within us a heart for God's glory. He says, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David gets it. You're not after this. You're not after these things. You're not after my achievements, my accomplishments. Those things are rooted in you anyway. You're not after all of this, but what you're after is a broken and contrite heart. You're after a heart that desires your glory, a heart of worship. I would say this, the heart that brings glory to God is the heart that refuses glory for himself. It's hard to glorify yourself when God holds up the mirror for you like he did for David through the prophet Nathan, just to show you how needy you really are. God has a way of robbing you of your glory. He succeeds in robbing you of your glory, but you fail to rob him of his. 
though we try. The heart set on the glory of God decreases so that Christ may increase. The heart set on the glory of God points others away from himself or herself and towards Jesus. I think of John the Baptist. He says, I must decrease so that he increases. When Jesus arrives on the scene, it's like, that's the man that we need to follow. I, the, those, those dirty sandals on his feet, I'm not even worthy to touch him. I must decrease. But that's not the mantra of our fallen world, is it? The mantra of our fallen world is to make a name for yourself with the time that you have. Leave your mark. Leave your legacy. And I would agree that everybody leaves a legacy. The question is, what kind of legacy do you desire to leave? Everyone wants to leave his or her mark. Everyone wants to be remembered. But what do we want to be remembered for? It seems that David here, as we see the byproduct of his brokenness that God has done, it seems like his desire was that he's already asked that God would give him a clean hands and a clean heart. And now he's saying, that's what I want because that's what you want. It's a heart that's contrite. And it's interesting that David's asking for something like that. After all this time, he's been heralded by God as a man after God's own heart. And yet David is brought through brokenness to a place of humility where he says, I need a pure heart. So what does the object of your praise say about the needs of your heart? Is Jesus the hero of your story, or are you? Do you need to decrease so that Christ may increase? Perhaps you need the love of God to grant brokenness in your life, like he did for David. And although we can't manufacture this, we can't just demand brokenness in an everything-on-demand world. We can't do that with God. We can pray and plead and beg God that He might bring brokenness into our lives. And I don't know what that would look like emotionally, but I do believe you'll see many things, if not all things, very similar to what we see in David. I'm not saying that this is the litmus test of brokenness in terms of if you have, you know, eight but not nine of these, not real. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm saying this is what we see coming from David. So we should look for something similar in our lives when God brings brokenness. And the reality might be you may not even know you need brokenness in an area of your life. And that's a perfect reason to pray just like David. Search me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me the way everlasting, created me a pure heart, renew within me a steadfast spirit. I know I didn't go into all of that, but these are the things that he prayed. So may we be broken for our good and for God's glory in our lives. May we pray for that and seek that so that we can better represent Jesus and that we might grow in our likeness of Christ because that's the way that these things happen. Let's pray. We can be dismissed. Father, you, you're gracious to us in granting that we might be broken ever because we know that the breaking of our bones is for our good in that sense. Lord, that your chastisement, Lord, that your judgment, that your retribution, because you are just, is good and it's right and it's fair. And Lord, I think we get that. I think we accept that. Lord, I pray that in the moment we can take what we believe now, what we accept in our minds and our hearts now, 
that when the moment comes, we can accept it then, that we can apply what we know of your justice, of our transgression, Lord, that we can apply what's true in that moment when it comes. Lord, so that we would not fall into the delusion of the enemy and whatever he brings our way. Lord, I pray that you would grant brokenness where needed for myself and for for my family here. Make us better, tear us down, rebuild us, so that we might be instruments in your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.